Welcome to episode 18 of Civil War Breakfast Club. I'm your co-host, Mary, also known as Ho-Ho Howard for this episode, and I am joined by my awesome co-host, Darren Weeks, also known as Jingle Bell Hood. Ho-Ho-Ho, L from the North. I'll have to ask, have you been good this year or not? So I'll leave that question alone. But I guess we'll find out that, that whole yeah. thing. You tell but me. Hey, no, 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 we'll see. We'll see how <laughs> Santa Claus comes next week, Mary. I guess we'll see what he brings us. See who, if you're going to get a big old lump of coal, which you Canadians probably use for heat up there. Anyway, um, <laughs> we are here for our first annual Santa Claus Civil War Breakfast Club Christmas Spectacular. Just before we get to the Yuletide joy here. I think we got to go back and talk a little bit about the last episode, right? We do, Which yep. is great. Well, let's put mm-hmm. a bow on that one. And what we'll do is we'll talk about Fredericksburg Val, which I thought was a good one, which just ended as we sit here 158 years later. Yep. But yeah, but I think we can turn our eyes to Santa and the elves and the reindeer and all the fun yeah. stuff that comes with Christmas and how it affected the Civil War. People don't yes. realize that Christmas was really spurred on by the Civil War. It was. But the first thing we have to talk about, though... And one of the things that brings holiday cheer is drinking beer. Certainly is. Good segue. So what are you drinking tonight? (laughs) So my first beer is Double Exposure from Cowbell Brewery, which is a local brewery. And then my next one is Hazy Sunset, which is a New England IPA from Bayfield Brewing Company, just like 15 minutes away from, from my house. And I am drinking it out of my George Henry Thomas mug because today is the anniversary of the Battle of Nashville. And which it's a two-day battle, and it's where he becomes known as, I believe, it's the Sledgehammer. Ooh, so he graduates excellent. from rock to Sledgehammer. Wow, sounds like a sounds like a tough one there. Anyway, I am drinking in Christmas spirit the No Santa IPA. Now, again, we know this is not true. It's just the name of a beer, so kids at home don't freak out. I'm changing gears today, Mayor. I'm, instead of a mug, I'm drinking it out of my Four Score Beer Company Christmas beer glass because nice. I am in a Christmas mood today, Mary. And then my next beer will be the Harpoon Winter Warmer, which is a cinnamon and nutmeg holiday Ooh. ale. So we're all very, very festive today. We are. Yes. And we will mm-hmm. definitely be festive for our Facebook Live on Saturday morning as well. We certainly will. I think we'll look forward to, uh, to that. Can you believe it's Christmas already? Week right. from Friday. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Speaking of our Facebook Live, we had a really, really good one on Saturday. Thanks to everybody who came out to that. There was lots of good discussion. And we will be doing it again next Saturday, as, as we mentioned. This next one will be fun talking. I think people would be a good holiday type mood. As this episode drops on Saturday, we'll have once again in our rearview mirror of our sleigh, we will have another round table, which is we will be recording tomorrow as we sit here. But we anticipate a good time as well as we will be doing books and other et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's it's fun to, to look at some different things, Mary. We, we, the last couple of episodes, we've really been in some of the more darker, deeper battles, yeah, depressing Franklin battles, right? and Fredericksburg. It's good we're doing a lighthearted one, especially considering just what's been happening around the world with the pandemic and people not being able to gather yeah. for the holidays like they usually do. And I, I think it's also going to be one where we can kind of reflect back to the Civil War and see that, you know, they were going through similar struggles to us, not being able to get home to spend time with loved ones and all that. And I think it's drawing a really interesting parallel. But as you said, to segue into our Christmas episode, you said that what we know as Christmas was born during the Civil War. It was. And Christmas, you know, back then, you know, to your point, it was a very happy day, but it was also a very sad day. And people don't realize, like Thanksgiving, Christmas was really, it was a minor holiday before the Civil War. I mean, it's nothing like it is today. It wasn't even a national holiday. Do you know, Mary, in the 1700s, Massachusetts, my state, imposed fines on people who celebrated Christmas? Do you know that? Really? Yeah, it was mostly Puritans and Calvinists in the state. 
big Festivus State. Okay, a lot of feats of strength. How do you think those those pilgrims lived for that rock of Plymouth, Mary? They just, you know. <laughs> but seriously, though, it, it was it was you could actually be fined in Massachusetts for celebrating Christmas back back in the 1700s. <laughs> Schools were open, businesses were open. You know, everything was open. It was just a, kind of a minor holiday. It did start to grow though in the 1800s. It started to take on some more importance. You started to see some of the more Christmas traditions, the Christmas tree and Saint Nicholas. Jingle Bells was written in 1851. It was, okay. yep. But you know what it was? It was a fun, but it was a secular holiday. It wasn't based mm-hmm. on religion. It was basically kind of like Thanksgiving is now, an excuse to get together and eat and drink and be with family. That's, that's yep. what Christmas was. Civil War changed everything. It did a full 180. Oh, it, it absolutely did. Another thing that spurred it along too was just traditions that were being brought from Europe by immigrants, you know, be they from like Germany or England or wherever, because they obviously celebrated Christmas over there. And like you just had Christmas Carol, you know, written by Charles Dickens <laughs> and published in 1843. That is only about not even 20 years old when the Civil War breaks out. Like you said, carols like Jingle Bells as well. Deck the Halls was out before the Civil War. O Come All Ye Faithful. It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. We Three Kings and Up on the Housetop. I was surprised about oh, Up on the Housetop was, came out. It was, I think, written in 1861 or around, around that I time. I was surprised Santa Got Run Over by a Reindeer came out then too. <laughs> If not, I didn't grandma think that. got run over by a reindeer. Oh, that's right. Grandma got run over. We'll just edit that one right out. Anyway, anyway, another fail. But it did take a more important thing. And you know what? It was an interesting thing because it was a holiday that was important because of families at home, but also soldiers in the field, right? And if you spend some time reading the soldier diary, and what it would basically do is you can read about Christmas messages in every single one of them. Every single one of them had something. There was, a, there was one by a guy named Nathaniel Dawson, 4th mm-hmm. Alabama. You know, who, you know who his wife was, Mary? No. Elodie Todd, the sister of Mary Todd Lincoln, which we don't call Mary Todd Lincoln anymore because of you. We just call Mary Lincoln. Hey. But it was... It was <laughs> I'm hey, just going right? by what I was told. I know. It's okay. But, she, but he wrote it. He wrote in his diary. It's, you know, it's just... And it kind of explains his, I wish I could be with you on Christmas, the festal season when age is rejuvenated and lives again in the merry carols of youth. Then he goes, bad whiskey is advantant and pleasure and sorrow are drowned in large portations. He talks about how these guys were sad and lonely and away from home, mm-hmm. but they still had, they still did what they could to have fun. But they're the still getting, they they're still getting loaded, right? I read one account where there was um, a Confederate soldier. He got a bottle of some kind of alcohol. He invited them into his tent and he was like, oh yeah, we're going to drink all this. He thought it was brandy. And then they opened it and somebody had got a hold of it and put water in it instead. He said in his diary, I hope the Yankee who played that practical joke lived to repent it and was shot before the war ended. So yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a funny story because it's that, that story, it's the you know, rumor is that the Yankee Pickett's got it. Yeah. Drank all the whiskey, filled with water and said, send it. And that, you know what? Well played. Yeah, you good gotta, for them. Because come on, the Confederates would have done the same fucking thing to them. So. Of course they would. Of course they yeah. would. But, uh, but speaking of the South and the Confederacy, you know, it was interesting in Christmas in the South as well because, you know, the slave owners, they kind of use this day as kind of a token mm. celebration with their slaves and probably a absolving guilt situation. They, they let them have a party and they gave them alcohol and all that stuff. And the slaves would probably pretend to be happy and every life yep. was great. But the Southerners, and you can picture this happening right now, is they blamed the North, the Yankees, on, on the lack of gifts that they received. So, you know, there's a book by the name of James Allen Martin. He wrote a book called The Children's Civil War. 
And he talked about a lot of different stories. Howell Cobb from the um, Southern Storm, Mary, yep. from uh, the beginning of that. So he was a Confederate general in the Georgia Reserves, one of the founding fathers of the Confederacy, actually. He was um, former governor of Georgia. You know, he fought Sherman in the March of the Sea, 1864. One of his slaves was kind of mocking his kids. And they basically said, you know, don't, don't you expect a visit from Santa Claus this year? You know, the Yankees shot him. That's what they, that's what they, that's what Howell Howell comes. And so, and then you had stories of Southern parents were, were telling the kids that Santa Claus was being held up by the rebel pickets, the Union Naval blockade. So that's why they didn't get their Xboxes and all this stuff. And their Legos. They had to settle for Magos. The Magos. And you talk about this. It all goes back to the Magos. (laughs) Megaballs. You know, it's one of those things you can see them doing that. I mean, the the economics was really, really bad at the time. Um, but I mean, again, families, they had to deal with their husbands or their brothers or their son's absence at the war. And, you know, and, and it's, you, you read some of these diaries, like we talk about all the time. It, it is kind of depressing if you think about it. A woman named Sally Brooke, she was a mm-hmm. woman sympathizer in Richmond. She said, never before has so sad a Christmas dawned upon us, right? It was obviously on their minds. You can kind of see like this bittersweet type of holiday where it's a festive type thing, but you got the empty chair, at least one, right? Exactly. Yeah. And there was many different illustrations done, you know, say in Harper's Weekly, most notably by a man named, is it Thomas Nast? Thomas Nast. Thomas Nast. He was a German Mm -hmm. immigrant, but he became a very famous editorial cartoonist or at least that's what we would call him today. So he is the one that kind of popularized the image of Santa that we now have of this fat jolly mm-hmm. guy. But he also did images of, you know, like there was one I saw of like a wife praying at a, like at a window. Then her husband is a soldier just in the field sort of thing. And it was titled like Christmas Eve. And they're absolutely beautiful sketches very- that, that he's done, but they're very powerful. But then he did a lot of political ones too. He did one of Santa where Santa's dressed up and, you know, he's got like the stars and stripes on and it's very much like sort of like think santa meets captain america kind of thing where it's very so political he he ain't the one who drew the picture of santa give the sword to the cavalry guy then that wasn't him you know oh. seen that picture yeah <laughs> yes yeah that was, that was that where nathan bedford forrest is getting a fucking sword from santa i, I, I think i think yes that was the weirdest thing but but Thomas but Thomas Nass he had a I mean Harper's Weekly had a gigantic impact in this country it was the most popular magazine by far of the time and they did a real good job of helping boost morale mm-hmm. and uplifting spirits and the pictures you mentioned the one you know, the dual circle ones with the wife praying at the window yep. and there's the there's the one of the the soldier at the camp and he's looking all forlorn to your point he, the image we know of Santa Claus today is his image yep so when you see Santa Claus at the mall. You could thank Thomas Nast, who actually was a, was a German. He wasn't even American. He might mm-hmm. even know Oh, Mary, or Ho, Ho, Ooh. I should say. Ho, Ho, Howard. <laughs> he might have been friends of Ho, Ho, Howard. Even U.S. Grant, mm-hmm. after the war, realized the impact he made psychologically with this country. We're trying to keep everybody up. He's quoted, he says, Nast did as much as any man to preserve the Union and bring an end to the war. They only really had these articles, these pictures, and that's what they had to go by. And then when you started seeing those war dead pictures starting to come home and all that, you can sort of see how the psychology and the, the morale yeah. was just down. Well, it must have been so tough for, not just on the home front, but the soldiers in the field. And like the soldiers, they made their own traditions out there to make it feel, I guess, a little bit more like they were at home. Like there was one soldier... Alfred Bellard of the 5th New Jersey, he said in order to make it look much like Christmas as possible, a small tree was struck up in front of our tent 
and decked off with hard tack and pork in lieu of cakes and oranges. So they're still trying to keep up with these traditions. Like, as you said, it kind of harkens back to that, the, like the drinking story that you said, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're sad they're not at, at home, but they're, they're making the most of it as they can with, with their fellow soldiers. And in some ways, that's kind of what we're having to do now. Like we're making the most of it for us here, those in our house, right? Just imagine, I mean, most Civil War movies you see have some kind of Christmassy scene. I mm-hmm. mean, the one in Glory, which was incorrect, the timing was wrong. But remember that, that yep. old Merry Christmas yep. scene, Robert? There's all kinds of stories. A guy from the first Minnesota named James Wright, he, was, he talks about how they got beef soup for celebration. They got mm-hmm. beef soup, that was a big deal. But he talked, he says, the men have been allowed as much liberty as consistent with discipline and were circulating among acquaintances and other regiments. I was frequently invited to smile, meaning to take a drink. <laughs> so these guys were going from regiment to regiments. Just picture, you know, picture you're, you're in your dorm back at your university. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. At Dairy Queen University back in Kim Carden. Okay. And you're in the dorm and people are going room to room partying, knocking on the doors. Hey, that's what you imagine this is where it was. Because every one of them was kind of fighting their own inner demons about not being home. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you're just somewhere you don't want to be, you're homesick. But it's not like you're away at college, you're on some business trip. You, you could be dead tomorrow. And so you don't know if you're ever going to see these people again. And just Exactly. Think, I don't think people could really get that, understand that, unless you're in a military type situation. Mm-hmm. I've, luckily, I can't. I know you can't. No. I mean, sure, there's definitely, everybody wants this. People, if they miss, they can't see. And they're on the yep. Christmas season. We all know that. But you think about how hard that was. And Christmas, I think, in the 19th century of America, I think what it really did is it really reinforced that image of home. It did. Right? Yeah. And it really made, you know, and it went all the way through as far as how important Christmas was. It, Christmas was a very uplifting mention, even in generals. I mean, the little redheaded guy, you know, he's even he's one who said, I beg you to present as a Christmas gift the city of Savannah, right? Exactly. Yeah. The best Christmas gift that Abraham Lincoln probably mm-hmm. ever received. There was also stories of a lot of people know the story from World War One of that truce between the Germans and the British soldiers where they played soccer. Well, that happened in the Civil War too, between the Confederates and the Union, like there was truces, you know, at Christmas time, and they would exchange stuff, they would talk and just kind of hang out together. And there was one story I read, uh, John Haley of the 17th Maine said, it is rumored that there are sundry boxes and mysterious, mysterious parcels over at Stoneman Station directed to us. We retire to sleep with feelings akin to those of children expecting Santa Claus. There is yeah, an excitement that these guys have, even though they can't be home. He was a solid Mainer, Mary. Mm-hmm. Another New Englander, 17th Maine, right? Yep. So, but again, and you got to remember too, these guys are young, right? This is not, this is, I mean, a guy like Jan, John Haley's probably 18, 19, maybe. Who yep. the hell knows? But he's, but he's a kid himself. Think about it. A lot of these guys are away from home for the very first time. And it just, you, you imagine how, how difficult it must have been. Even on the family side, just talking about how hard it must have been. I mentioned Mary Chestnut's diary. And she wrote a little bit of poetry, you know, and so I dug out her diary earlier today. Thank God there's no centerfold in that one, Mary. I'll tell you that right now. Okay. Like my Claiborne biography? Yeah, thank God there's none of that. I mean, Christmas <laughs> would be ruined for everybody. be canceled if that was the case. She wrote about Christmas time, probably 1863, 64, something like that. And she was a Southern sympathizer who lived in Charleston, South Carolina. A very famous diary. She wrote, darkest of all Decembers, even my life has known, sitting here by the embers, stunned, helpless, and alone. And it's sad, right? Mm-hmm. And you just read these things. And this, this is the type of, of feeling they had. 
where it's a holiday, you're festive, you're kind of smiling through your gritted teeth and you're yeah. trying to smile. And kind of like the way you are right now, as a matter of fact, the way you are <laughs> half the time I talk to you, that's another story. But, but I think, you know, what these, like these women did at home, they spent a lot of time helping soldiers mm-hmm. yep. um, medically built, making clothes, um, season of giving. I mean, they did take advantage of all that. You know, they really, really tried. But again, it's, um, it's a situation where you can only do so much, right? Yep, I mean, exactly. fortunately, there weren't too many battles around Christmas. They all seemed to notice not to do anything. Granted, it was cold. It was, you know, whatever. Two weeks after Fredericksburg, it was Christmas in 1862. Exactly. And I can't imagine how hard it was for the people of Fredericksburg. You know, their, their town has been looted by the Union Army. And so not only that, but they're probably having to deal with hearing about loved ones that have been killed and then dealing yeah. with the aftermath of the looting right like boys arrest was totally cleaned up <laughs> all the legos were gone <laughs> the legos are totally gone you, obviously these young kids had to grow up quick i mean it just it's a different world it's a different world we, we talk about this stuff you talk about the parallels right to mm-hmm. even now it's a lot of crap going on it's christmas but do you think anybody's really happy right now with oh, no i mean I, I i think we're trying to be but it, it, it's also different but i think the thing to you know, to kind of remember is that we're all in this together and we'll get through it. And next Christmas will probably be like the ones that have come before this one that we're in now. And like the thing that made me think of that was when I was looking through Howard's memoirs to see if I could find something that he said about Christmas. So I went to the the capture of Savannah to see if he said anything about how Christmas was. And around Christmas, he's he's writing to his family. So he writes to his wife. I want to see the loving faces of yours and the children so much that I am really homesick. So he's mm-hmm. so homesick at this point. And he actually goes to Sherman and he asks him if he can have leave. He just wants two days. He says, I just want two days to go and see my family. And Sherman says, he responds, General, I would give a million dollars if I had it to be with my children too. That's when Howard kind of like, Sherman's not putting him down, but he's saying, I think he's reminding him, you know, we're all here together. I can't go and see my family either. And here's what I would give to go see them. And I think it kind of, like Howard said after that, it kind of brought him back to reality that if the commanding general doesn't get to go see them, then then he can't either. And then he probably remembered there's the soldiers too. But I think the story also shows that, you know, Howard is very human and he had emotions and they all probably went through that. And I think it's really, you can draw a parallel to all t- our time now where we're, we've all had moments like that, where we're like, well, this isn't fair. I just, I just want to go see my family, you know? And for me, it, I just want to be able to cross the border to see my closest friends. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I can't right now. It's, it's hard. Yeah. And you know, it's, in, yeah. you can make a, you know, obviously it's a different, it's a different thing, mm-hmm. but you can make parallels to a lot yeah. of stuff today. You know, not to be too somber with this, but, but you know, I'm you not know, going to be somber. Come, come but... bring, bring me down. <laughs> God, fine. You know what? Forget <laughs> Christmas. The hell with it. It's canceled. I wasn't, I was just trying to like, we're about making them human. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. But Robert Gould Shaw, 54th Massachusetts, you know, um, and he wrote that quote that we mentioned before we started, which kind of, it kind of could, could be said today, if you really think about it. Yeah. He wrote, it is Christmas morning. Well, not, not today. It's not Christmas morning, but you know what I mean? It is Christmas morning, and I hope a very happy and merry one for you all, though it looks so stormy for our poor country, one can hardly be in merry humor. Could be, it could be written, that could be literally what oh, said yeah. today. But again, I think the point to your overall is this type of thing. Everything springs eternal, and you have to basically hope that everything's going to be fine. And it will, and just exactly. like they did back then. Because if people, you know what, back then was soldiers were happy for the, for the break, but sad and lonely, you know, for missing their families, and vice versa. The families oh, yeah. miss well, them. And- 
it's like right now, like it sucks that, you know, that we can't be with people we want to be at Christmas, but we can still make the most of it because we're lucky in this world that we can, you know, connect virtually with people. You just kind of make the most of it and try and be positive like, like they were. I think that's what I pulled away from the research I did. Well, I'll tell you what then. Why don't we try to be positive right now and have some fun? Okay, if you want to lighten you up a little bit? You want to, you want to be in a better mood now? Fine. Okay. All right, bringing everybody down. I'm right. not the one that ended with a quote that said hardly in any merry humor. <laughs> okay, fine. Got it. Let's play a little game here, okay? Since we're in our Christmas attire. Well, yeah. I have a hat on. You have a whatever that thing is you have on. I'm an elf. It looks like a fruit ball. Is that what you have right now? No, it's an elf um, hat. It's an elf it's hat. An elf. I know it is. Let's pretend we're going to each be take turns being Santa Claus, okay? I'm going to pick a general, and I'm going to tell you his background. You're going to be... Ho, ho, Howard. So you can be Santa Claus. And you tell me if he was naughty or nice. And then you do the same thing for me, okay? I'm going to start with the great Charles Tilden. Okay. Okay. So yep. Charles Tilden, you know, we'll talk a little bit about him. Basically, he's a guy who will ultimately come out of the uh, Battle of Gettysburg. He's from Castine, Maine. It's a small town just right outside of Bangor. It's actually a couple towns over from, from Brewer, where Joshua Chamberlain is. This is a guy who basically is the other general from Maine in the Civil War. Chamberlain gets all out of the credit. He's different. He's, he's born from a rich family. So he's born the son of a cod fisherman, and he was making big money. They ended up getting hissed with a kind of a recession. They called it an economic pandemic, ironically, in 1857. Some trade issues going back and forth with the United States and overseas were stalled, and it really bled out these guys. Now, what's interesting about Tilden's family was they benefited a lot from the slave trade, these fishermen. He was somebody who was not an abolitionist, but he was someone who was a, I guess, just a solid patriot American. He went to Bowdoin College, of course, born in 1832. Basically, he's interesting because he went to Bowdoin, but he admittedly, he said he was basically no genius, no genius in mind or study. He, he, he just, he wanted to be in the military. So he ended up joining or creating a, a small militia in the late 1850s, probably just for something to do. War breaks out and Lincoln calls up, you know, sends letters you know, for volunteers. So he basically enlists in the 1861, the 2nd Maine Volunteers Company B. He ends up going down to Bull Run and he obviously survives that. And he basically gets discharged and sent home. So now you know, it's very similar to a lot of guys who kind of build their own militias at home. Uh, William C. Oates comes to mind at the 15th Alabama. He kind of raises his own regiment in Maine. He goes back to Castine and raises the 16th Maine. He's going to be their colonel, and he's going to basically recruit guys from all around the place. They're nicknamed the Blanket Brigade because they're all poor, and that's what the nickname they called them. I don't know why, but that's the nickname they had. He ultimately ends up joining the Army of the Potomac, and he's going to, you know, he's going to be in John Reynolds' First Corps and John's, uh, John Cleveland Robinson's division and Gabriel Paul's brigade. He's, going to, he's really going to make his chops at Oak Hill at Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863. This is where the, you know, the good and the bad thing there is. So you got to pay attention, okay? So you're delve, delving out the good and the bad here, so we'll see how it goes, okay? Gabriel Paul's brigade is really the last one. By then, they're getting attacked hard by Robert Rhodes' division. They're getting pounded by all five brigades, you know, uh, Ramser and, and you know uh, O'Neill and, and, and all those guys are getting they're getting hit from all different directions. So finally, Abner Doubleday, who is now in charge of the First Corps because Reynolds got killed, tells Robinson, "Roll them up, we're out of here. Let's go. I need one regiment to stay back because we need someone to cover our retreat." And that's what he does. And so they ends up picking the 16th Maine, Charles Tilden. So he says basically he's being told, 
you need to hold this ground at all costs. You have to basically sacrifice your regiment for, for so, so the 11th Corps, I mean, the 1st Corps can, can get out. There's your answer, by the way, the 1st and the 11th Corps that broke. It was these guys. So, I knew it. Oh, okay, there it is. Anywho, so finally, Tilden basically tells his guys, well, we're screwed. He basically creates an, kind of an L, kind of like a mini salient, right near where the observation tower is in Oak Hill. That, that's pretty much right where they were, right? He's getting hit from three different directions. So he's got Stephen Dodd Ramser coming on one side, he's got Junius Daniel coming on the other, and he's got O'Neill coming. So he's got from three different directions, he's getting hit now. So he holds it for about 10 minutes and says, and finally he says, you know what? Everyone's pretty much gone. Let's get the hell out of here. So they decide they're going to they're gonna go. They ultimately get lost. They, they, where the Pizza Hut is over there in Chambersburg Pike, seriously, mm-hmm. is where most of them got caught. You know, one of Tilden's deputies, one of his sergeants says, we can't let them get the colors. So they literally took the flags and tore them up and stuck them, and stuck them in their pants, their shirts, because they didn't want to get them captured. Finally, they get caught. One of the Confederates says, you know, hand over your sword. So he takes it and sticks it in the ground and snaps it off with a hilt and basically goes, fuck off. So he gets captured. And so just to, just to give you an idea of how the 16th Maine was and how I'm going to say 16th is greater than 20th here, okay? 275 guys were there on that site. 40 made it out. 80% math, casualties, right? The 40 guys who survived had to join Chamberlain the next day around Top. So they were there. But you don't hear about the 16th. You don't hear about the 20th. He gets captured. He gets taken to Libby Prison in Richmond, and he escapes. He gets the hell out of Dutch. He gets out of there. He makes it back to the Union. He ultimately gets caught again the next year at Weldon Railroad in Petersburg. They catch him again, and he escapes again. No one knows what happens to him. He disappears to history at that point. And he died in 1914, the same year as Joshua Chamberlain, by the way, ironically. When you look just comparing the two, 83% casualties for the 16th Maine. At Gettysburg, you know how many Chamberlain had around top? 30. 30%. So it's crazy. I mentioned before, there's a diary by the, name of, by the name of Abner Small, The Road to Richmond. He basically writes after the war, and this is what he says, and I quote, says, it is no exaggeration to say no regiment in all the army had more scholar, had a more scholarly commander than Colonel Tilden, nor was there one that was braver, more skillful, or cooler under all circumstances. So this is a guy who literally gave it all and survived but then disappeared and he's lost to history and he's someone who just gets ignored. And his story was not even mentioned in Meade's battle report. Not one of the, not one of Robinson's divisions was even mentioned in Meade's battle report. It wow. just kind of shows how it was. So yeah. I leave it to you. Is he on the nice list or the naughty list? Obviously he's on the nice list and clearly he falls into the same category as OO does was kind of being, he's even more so lost to history than OO is. And I think that's just, you know, something that I've found with doing this podcast with you is there's so many men like Tilden that have done these heroic kind of things, or they've done, you know, there's somebody else that is well known, but they've done something that is equal to or or greater than and just aren't known. And, you know, like, as you were telling me earlier, Tilden doesn't write memoirs. He doesn't write memoirs. Doesn't anything. He's just kind of lost to history. He's just, he's, you know, he's buried back in Castine. It's yeah. a grave that probably doesn't get visited all that much. Yeah. But again, he's, he's one of these faceless guys we talk about. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy who really deserves more credit than he does. Not that I guess Chamberlain. I mean, he did great things too. But I think this is kind of the, the opposite of Chamberlain in Maine. This is a guy who Mainers know, especially up, up near Bangor, that whole area. But Chamberlain gets a lot of publicity because of the fact that Chamberlain wrote. And he, was, he wrote a lot after the war. Exactly. There was a yeah. lot of that like we talked about earlier today, but again, a guy like Tilden, 
is somebody who needs a lot more credit than he really gets. He's someone yep. who deserves a lot more light on him. That's why he made my list. All like right. That. So who do you? Who right. am I? I'm going to go with James Johnston Pettigrew. Ooh, okay. Confederate. He's born July 4th, 1828 in North Carolina, and he's described as being very gifted. He graduates as valedictorian in 1847, and he's um, very good at math. Just like you. Yeah. <laughs> and he's actually professor at National Observatory appointed by President Polk and Navy Secretary John Mason. But he leaves there after six months to study law. Between January 1850 and 1852, he travels to Europe. And this won't be his first trip there. This was subsidized by James C. Johnson, a friend of his father's, who gave him $50,000 to go to Europe and just kind of wander around. And between 1852 and 1861, he lives in Charleston. He's a law... He's practices law. He speaks seven languages. You speak seven languages, right? Oh yeah, I totally English, do. cursing, swearing, yelling, bitching. That's bitching, <laughs> whining, crying. Oh, all the same languages you speak. Oh, oh well, okay, fine. Oh, you speak yeah. diva. You speak diva bitch. I speak logic and brilliance, Mary. And diva bitch. I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> Including Arabic and Hebrew, which he taught himself Arabic with um because he wanted to write about the Spanish Moors. He wanted to write a history about them. So he's very like much, very much an intellectual guy. He was also into boxing and fencing. He never married, which is quite interesting considering he is played by George Lazenby who plays James Bond. So he's kind of like James Bond in that way. We've talked a lot about him. Yeah. Well, it was more so than we thought. Tilden has, matter of fact. I know. Um, <laughs> Tilden, oh, he is, by the way. <laughs> Anyway, he's a self-taught military engineer and artillerist. I draw a lot of between him and Claiborne, just because the whole, like, they're not educated at West Point. But as we're going to see, like, Pettigrew does go pretty far in the Confederate Army, a lot like Claiborne does. And they're both around the same age, too. During epidemics, he's said to have nursed the sick and helped out with poor people and all that and get them through time. So he's, he does a lot of stuff like that. He's described as not a very enthusiastic secessionist, but still, he's fighting for the Confederacy. He does believe that the war will be a long and drawn-out affair, and he can see it kind of, you know, he can see that the country is headed towards war. So in December of 1860, he's actually the aide to the governor of South Carolina with negotiations with Fort Sumter. So he's involved in that. But just actually, just going back a little bit, he writes a book called Notes on Spain and the Spaniards in the summer of 1859 with a glance at Sardinia. That's his book that he wrote, and it was actually released around the time of Fort Sumter. So it kind of flies under the radar. But it's a book that later on got a lot of like claim because it's a travel account and history of Spain. Was that the that. book he tried to pedal on Longstreet to pick a charge in the movie? Yeah, probably. No wonder you didn't want to read it. <laughs> If he was trying to peddle a book, yeah. That Sounds was brutal, book. actually. His book. It was apparently like it was anybody who read it said it was really, really good. I know you're about to get your entire core killed. But here, we'll have to read a book about Spain. Read my book. <laughs> and he actually drew a lot of parallels with Spain and the Confederacy and what they were fighting for, which is why he, he wrote the book. So he saw a lot of similarities between the two countries. He's appointed chief military aide, General Francis Pickens, and he's elected uh, Colonel to the first regimental rifles and he's actually once the civil war starts he's recommended several times for brigadier general but he turns it down because he felt no one should have that command unless they've actually led troops into battle actually met with jeff davis about this around the peninsula campaign he finally accepts that he finally accepts that 
So at Seven Pines, he's wounded through the throat and shoulder while he's advancing on the enemy, and he refused to be carried to the rear. Flash forward, this is kind of what's going to get him killed in the end. He gets his wounds bandaged, only to get wounded again, and then he's reported to be dead. So his whole family's told he's dead, but he's actually been taken prisoner, and he's eventually exchanged. So he ends up commanding a brigade. So he's got the 11th, 26th, 44th, 47th, and 52nd South Carolina regiments. And he fights with them in small battles in eastern North Carolina between September 1862 and spring 1863. Governor Zubalon B. Vance, I hope I'm saying that right, he petitions for mm-hmm. Pettigrew to be assigned command in North Carolina, but he's unsuccessful because Pettigrew ends up going and being involved in the Battle of Gettysburg. And on July the 1st, he's the one of the ones that drives back the Iron Brigade. I believe his brigade is going to suffer 40% casualties. Pettigrew takes over after Heath there said it properly. Um, it's Heath. It's wounded. <laughs> Pickett's Charge. He's involved in Pickett's Charge. So he's one of the guys that never gets talked about. Which is why I like, I find myself, I've said, whenever I hear Pickett's charge, I'm kind of like, no, it's the Pettigrew Pickett Trimble charge. Like, let's remember the other two guys that were involved. It wasn't just Virginia that got to write the history of it, right? There's, well, he actually had more brigades than, than Pickett did. He did. Yeah. I mean, he had, he had Brock and Bro. Yeah. Which, you know, who didn't work out ran. too well for him. Broke and ran. He also had Davis you know, who from the July first you mentioned. He yep. had Marshall, mm-hmm. okay, who had been replaced up with the injuries. And he had Burkett Fry, the former 13th Alabama guy who got promoted up when Pender got, got yep. more rewarded. So he had a good brigade and they were actually in good position. You know, had Trimble in the back, you know, with, mm-hmm. with Lawrence and Lane. Yep. I think what doomed them, I don't want to steal your thunder here, you know, no, but, okay. but I think when Brock and Bro got pounded by the artillery and he's on Cemetery Hill, the, the 8th Ohio was able to rake Davis, and, it, and the whole thing kind of fell apart on that end. But you're right. He doesn't get enough credit for, for Pickett's charge. He really didn't. And no. he's someone, I'm sure you're going to tell his, his ending here, but it's mm-hmm. something that was a real big loss for them, the Confederacy yeah. after oh, that. Oh, yeah. It, it was. like So Pickett's charge, he's got to lead by foot because his horse gets shot, and he's one of the last men to return to the Confederate lines. So he stays up there. He's one of these ones that's like Claiborne. Like he's a soldier, and he stays with his men, and he actually puts himself at risk. He takes a lot of heavy fire from Alexander Hayes' division. In the retreat from Gettysburg, he gets caught at Falling Waters on July the 14th. And while he's out directing his soldiers, a Union cavalryman from Michigan actually shoots him, and he's wounded through the abdomen. So same place as Claiborne that he's wounded. He refused to be left in the hands of the Federals, though, and because of that, he will die three days later at Edgewood Manor near Bunker Hill in West Virginia. His brigade ends up suffering a total of 56% casualties. He's 35 years old when he dies, and he was said by one to be the most promising young man of the South. So the reason I picked him, admittedly, I went into it not knowing much about Pettigrew, not knowing if I'd find really good, really bad, you know, obviously fighting for the Confederacy, that's not a good thing. But I sometimes wonder if he would have been like a long street after the war and kind of come around and seen how you know the union do what Longstreet did and Mosby, right? Like just kind of like let's be friends, let's let's heal what has happened because I mean, we're talking about a guy that was very educated, obviously highly, highly intelligent. He was not, he was described as not a strong secessionist. So I don't know what that really means. I mean, obviously not fire eating or whatever you want to call it. I think he definitely was very, very talented. And also, you know, the fact that he's refusing to at first the brigadier general, because he's like, well, I haven't fought or whatever. And I don't think that's right that I would get that command just you know, assuming I'm going to be good at it or whatever, right? Well, I mean, he's a guy. I mean, I mean, 
if you've ever been a falling uh, falling waters in West mm. Virginia, which I get to visit last spring, and middle it was awesome to go there, is you know he's a guy who was killed obviously mortally wounded during the retreat, like you mentioned, but he was charging personally a sniper, a Massachusetts guy, Mary. Mm-hmm. Okay, it wasn't me. Where he there was a there was a, sh- a guy behind a barn shooting at the at the his soldiers and he just went at him and he got mm-hmm. shot in the chest and that was the end of him. He has taken yep. Bunker Hill and ends up dying. Yep. But again, he's somebody who, you know, look, I got the Confederate thing and then that's, you know, whatever. But this, that, that's, that was a big loss. He was a guy who told Heath this on this dismounted cavalry. And they yep. said, no, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. He was somebody who not as big as an Albert city Johnson death, obviously that big or obviously a Jackson death, mm-hmm. but he's somebody who as that second half of the war went on, we we're always talking about the Confederates running out of quality generals. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who, if he's alive in 64, early 65, maybe he goes West, maybe with yeah. Longstreet. Maybe he goes out there with Chickamauga, Chattanooga. Who, I mean, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. How that happens to be surprised. So yeah, that's a big loss. And he was somebody who was very intelligent, somebody who moved up the ranks pretty quickly when he found out that he spoke six languages, including yep. cursing and swearing. You know, but he's somebody who um that's a that's a good one, Mary. Good call. Thank you. Didn't know what had in you. You'd be shocked. Whew. Okay. So naughty or nice. You know what? This is a tough one. You know what? I know, because it's Confederacy, right? You know what? I'm gonna put him on the nice list and risk my risk the scorn. Confederacy, <laughs> Confederacy be damned. I think he's somebody who, when you talk about some of these guys, these real hardcore dudes like the forests of the world mm-hmm. or the Barksdales of the world, I think he's somebody who probably, I think to your point, he was a small S secessionist. I think he was fighting because North Carolina was involved in it. And he's somebody who offered a lot of promise after the war. And I don't think he owned any slaves either. So I, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think he does. No, so I, think I, th- I, I, th- I think I will reluctantly, maybe he only gets, a, he, he doesn't get the, you know, he doesn't get Madden 20. Maybe he gets Madden 19, the old game, doesn't get the new one. <laughs> he's James um, Bond. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He'll, he's single. He'll get, he'll get the, uh, you know, he'll get the, uh, you know what, I'm going to buy him the toy, but I'm not going to give him the batteries just to piss him off. That's You're going to get gonna a Mega Blocks and not like I'm going to get a Mega Blocks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I, I think it's a good, that's a good story, though. And he's somebody, again, like a Tilden, who I think a lot of people should study more because I think he tells a good story. Yeah, no, he's very, um, I, I actually find just, um, I'm kind of going, taking us off the rails here a little bit, but I actually find now that I've looked at Trimble and Pettigrew a little bit more, I actually find them both a little bit more fascinating than Pickett. Like I've always found Pickett, Pickett doesn't, I don't need to read about Pickett. I, I find Trimble and, and Pettigrew much more interesting. And I just, I think they need to be mentioned when you're talking about the history of Pickett's Charge. You know what I mean? Again, we talked about this before. The, the, the Virginians get to write the story. And that's mm-hmm. the problem with this. And, but that's why we study this, Mayor. That's why we do yep. this. Is people, you know, there's more to life than just that movie, Mayor. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So he's on the nice list. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll, right. we'll give a warning, though. Now, he better be better this year. John, you know, you've been a good boy, but you've had some problems. So we're going to give the benefit of the doubt. So be good. Be better next year. But I'll get you that toy this year. So. Who's up next for you? Well, speaking of coal and speaking of fire eaters and speaking of capital S secessionals, I decided to go with William Barksdale, Mary, just because I thought I'd try to make this a little bit easier for you. So let's talk about this guy, William Barksdale. Big, big supporter of slavery, Mary. Real eagerness to really beat the Yankees. Big, um, he, he, He was someone who, even in a group of real pro slavery, fire eating bastards, 
this guy stood out. I mean, he with this, okay, he, he just was. He was referred to by General Lafayette Santa McClaws as the fiery, impetuous Mississippian. He's somebody who basically had a lot of energy, a lot of fire in him. He had long white hair. He'd ride or blow in the wind like an old hating Fabio blowing in the wind. And, and so he, he would basically, you know, he basically was, was someone who really inspired his guys though. He's from Smyrna, Tennessee. He was born in 1821. He went to the University of Tennessee too. So SEC guy, I suppose. He actually went to law school, started studying law at a relatively young age. He was actually, he stood next to Preston Brooks in the, uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives while he was caning Charles Sumner. He stood right there and watched it, right next to him. Oh my you know God. Yeah, he was right there. On, this is on May of 1858, right around there. So Barksdale was right there watching him and you know, that whole story with Preston Brooks. So basically he uh, ends up being a quartermaster general in the Mississippi Army when the war breaks out. 1861, he joins as colonel of the 13th Mississippi. Eventually he got his star in of August of 1862. He fought a battle of uh, Malvern Hill. Didn't work out too well there. But his brigade of Mississippians we're going to see at Gettysburg here. This, this is the 13th, the 17th, the 18th, and the 21st Mississippi regiments. He's going to fight McClaw's division of Longstreet's 1st Corps. And I think everyone knows his story at Gettysburg. He's going to be part of that July 2nd assault, that echelon assaults. He basically is going to attack the Peach Orchard. He's going to break through. He's going to actually have a substantial breakthrough. He's going to move up the Emmitsburg Road. And he basically is going to, he's also before that, he's going to be Fredericksburg Mary. We talked about last week. He was in the West Woods of Antietam. He was there as well. But obviously Gettysburg is really where everyone knows him from because that's where it, it all ended for him. So late in the afternoon, he's riding along and he's leading his corps in the, third, the Peach Orchard. He crushes Charles Graham right there, the brigade right at the Peach Orchard, and he's riding on his horse. He basically gets his left foot shot off, you know, and he's just kind of dragging along. He's shot again, I think, in the leg, then he finally gets shot in the chest. This probably would have been between the, uh, the Trossel Barn in that area, heading back towards Plum Run, heading back towards, you know, heading back towards Devil's Den in that whole area. Then no one really knows where he fell either, but they have a general idea where he was. He dies. Some Union guys find him, and they bring him back to the Hummelbaugh house. And it's interesting about Barksdale, Mary, is that he's a Freemason, right? Yep. And he has Masonic buttons on his shirt. And so somebody recognizes that. The story is, and this is unsubstantiated, kind of like the Claiborne story we talked about a few weeks ago, but the story is some Union guys gave him a Masonic funeral. Right? Wow. It's a story where I guess he had a dog when they came to retrieve his body. The dog just kind of sat in his grave and just sat there. I mean, not, we'll have to humanize the story a little bit with the guy. Yeah. Finally, he gets moved out, gets, gets dug up and taken out of there. But he, he was buried in the Humboldt House for a little while. So for him, I mean, he's a guy who, think of the Confederacy, you think of that flag and you think of what they were fighting for. He's, he's your guy. He's the one dude who, uh, for better or for worse, he's a, he's a pro-slavery, anti-union, pro-South. He checks all the boxes, Mary. I will defer to your forgiving heart as McClaws sits, I mean, uh, as Barksdale sits on your lap at the mall and begs forgiveness. Is he going to get coal or is he going to get, is he going to be on the nice list? What are you going to do? Fucking coal. Oh, it'd be a warm Christmas in Mississippi then with all that coal. <laughs> it sure will. I think that's, a, that's, the right, I mean, that's the right call. I mean, he's a guy. I mean, obviously, I want oh, yeah. to go with the good and the bad. He's an interesting story, though, because. Say what you will about him, and there's not much good you can say about him. He did veer off the course. I mean, some of these guys, the Mosby's, the Pettigrews, the Longstreet's, they kind of, eventually, they kind of, their hearts softened a little bit. 
This guy did not. I mean, no. he was, I mean, he's, Nathan Bedford Forrest gets a lot of shit, deservedly so, but Boxdale's right there with him there. He really mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Yep. He's getting cold. So he's going to be a very sad Christmas morning as he wakes up in the, uh, his dirt nap at the Humble House. Actually, he's yep. been moved since. He's, he's on Mississippi. <laughs> dirt <right>? so, <laughs> so anyway. All right. So we'll do one more, Mary. We'll go to one more. Um, Jingle Bell Hood Me. I'm in a good forgiving mood right now. So who do you got next? Yeah, well, this might shock you, but I'm going to go with Jefferson Columbus Davis. Whoa, I would have sworn you were going to go with Howard. I thought you were saving that till the end. Nope. All right, I Jefferson C. Davis. I Jefferson like Jefferson C. Davis, who is not to be confused with President of the Confederacy, though they share the same name. This is a Union general. And he's most well known for murdering a superior officer in 1862, but also Ebenezer Creek. So I picked him because I wanted to show that bad on the Union side too. You know, like we can't just sit here and say like, oh, all the Union soldiers are good. They're getting, you know, like, and I could have went with Kilpatrick and I was thinking about Slocum, but then I thought, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Jefferson C. Davis, who was on Sherman's March to the Sea. So he, you know, like anybody else, he's got distinguished service in Mexico, which earned him very high prestige at the outbreak of the Civil War. He's just, he's got a pretty good track record going into it. So he's born in Indiana in 1828. So he's one of the younger ones. He's actually born the same year as, uh, as Pettigrew. So he's one of the younger ones in the Civil War. He dies November 30th, 1879 at the age of 51. So it's kind of a young age to die. But in the Civil War, he's in Missouri for the beginning of it. And he ends up getting ill in the late summer of 1862. And it was probably caused by exhaustion. And he wrote to his commander, who was General Rosecrans at the time, requesting a few weeks late leave. And he stated that after 21 months of arduous service, I find myself compelled to physical weakness and exhaustion to ask for a few weeks respite from duty. Rosecrans offers him that on August 12, 1862. And so he heads home to rest and recuperate from that. But the big thing that happens with him is killing of General Nelson, his superior. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting story. And apparently it happened at a place called the Galt House. And that was where Buell and Nelson were both commanding from. Nelson dismissed Davis and said, like, Davis came in to talk, like, approach Nelson asking for an apology for what had happened. Nelson had offended him previously. And Nelson just says to him, go away, you damned puppy. I don't want anything to do with you. And Davis took in his hand a a registration card. And while he confronted Nelson, he took his anger out in the card, first by gripping it and then wadding up in the small ball, which he took and flipped in Nelson's face. It's starting to get personal at this point. It's like at the mine that night. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, then he ends up shooting him and he ends up dying. The shot occurred at 8 a.m. And by 8.30, Nelson was dead. So he ends up killing him. Davis didn't leave he did not run or evade capture he was just simply taken into military custody and he's confined to the galt house he ends up just getting off for whatever reason like he's not really charged with anything at all and meanwhile he's murdered his superior officer it's amazing stuff like that happens i mean you know a lot of these guys there are people getting executed for leaving camp you know these soldiers these poor guys and there's a guy who kills his boss in cold yeah. blood in public in a hotel at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And he probably gets put in time off for a little while and says, don't do it again. Exactly. Although he got, 
his punishment is probably no more harsh than the real Jefferson Davis. Is <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, geez, like talk about like, oh, you're in prison for what, three years? Okay, we're going to let you go. And then he goes and lives in Canada for a while. He never receives a full promotion higher than Brigadier General of Volunteers just because of the whole murder thing, right? Because they're like, that's kind of a stay on your record. So. Yeah, if you're, if you're Achilles stabby, that kind of affects your career pass, I think. Yeah, I think exactly. Kind of works. But he does receive a brevet promotion to Major General of Volunteers on August 8th, 1864, um, just for what his service at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. And then he is commanding officer of the, oh God, am I, what's XIV? I can't read my role. 14? 14, thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. I knew the math wasn't big, Mary, but my God. I just, sorry. I, no, it's okay. It's you know, the Atlanta campaign, which he, he will be in that role until the, the end of the war. The other thing too that is against him is during Sherman's march to the sea at Ebenezer Creek. He pulls up the pontoon bridges. I mean, they say it was because he had to keep going. But this is a guy that has a track record of ruthlessness towards former slaves. He's exhibited it throughout the march. Sherman knows it about him and turns a blind eye. Jefferson C. Davis pulls up the pontoons and all these freed slaves that have been traveling with them throughout the march, they end up drowning. A lot of them get, a lot of them drowned. Yeah. A lot of them get recaptured by the, the cavalry from the Confederacy that were chasing them from behind. So yep. it's in, and this, and this is old people, children, women. That that's a yeah. That's, but again, you know, you talk about Sherman. He talked, you know, again, I know you, this isn't really a Sherman talk, but at the beginning of his march to the sea, he had a chance to have some prisoner exchanges with some guys from Andersonville. He turned them down because he only insisted on healthy people. Mm-hmm. to join him to, to, he wouldn't trade for any invalids and yep. so uh, and he, and he so, does turn a blind he he turns a blind eye kind of this thing and i'm sure we'll talk about it more next week in our episode about the march to the sea actually i think ebenezer C- creek warrants a whole episode in itself um just because i've heard people say oh well he had to pull them up because he had to keep going it's like well you know i i don't know maybe i'm looking at it as somebody from the 21st century but given jefferson c davis's track record and all that, like, I mean, I get it. He seems like he was a pretty talented commander, but as a human, you know, considering the two men leading the the left and the right wing, Slocum and Howard are abolitionists. This guy here is more in line with, hate to say it, how Sherman is. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's more Blackjack Logan than O. Howard. Exactly, too. yeah, exactly. And that's probably why it was easy for Sherman to turn a blind eye. You know, I can't imagine that somebody like Howard or Slocum would would look upon something like this or even be able to do something like this. But he does it twice, not just, just at Ebenezer Creek, but another creek as well. Yeah, I mean... I, that happens twice. A decision like that, though, Mary, isn't one that a guy like him comes up with on his own. No, he, that, I know. He, he got ordered to do that by somebody. Yeah. And so if it was Howard or Slocum... Um, they got those positions. Why? Because they took orders and they just, they didn't mess around. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I think he was tough. on the left wing. He's under Slocum, which actually right. given what I know about Slocum, it kind of shocks me that, you know, he would have went ahead to make that decision. And I know like it was hard for them to keep the slaves with them because of food and, and, and all that. But, you know, I just, I think it's a very controversial d- thing about the March to the Sea and one that I don't, I don't think we'll ever know the full story behind it, but like, I just kind of saw that and that murder of Nelson as kind of being like one of those, like, oh, this guy's got kind of stains on, on his career. So after the civil war, um, he commands forces out in California and Oregon during the Modoc War of 1872-1873, and he ends up during the 1877 general strike. He commands 300 men and two Gatling guns to cr- in the St. 
in St. Louis. He ends up passing away in Chicago, Illinois on November 30th, 1879, and he's buried in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that is my pick, Jefferson C. Davis. I think if if I'm casting my Santa Claus judgment, I got to give him Cole Mayer. I think I have mm-hmm. to. I mean, just the fact that he killed the guy, actually, it's kind of an easy one. Of course, he's going to get freaking Cole. I mean, ditch all those those poor people. And, yeah. and again, just because you're ordered to do it and we assume that's what he was, doesn't mean doesn't mean that makes you a better person. So I think he's a guy. That's a good pick on your part, by the way. I think a lot of people don't realize, A, there was another Jefferson C. Da- mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis and how he was, right? And, and to your point, we hear a lot about a, con- a lot of Confederate stories of things like this. You don't hear too many Northern stories. So, so no. studying him will help give you a more 360 worldly view exactly, of all yeah. these things. Yeah. And, that, and that's, why, that's why I picked him for this was just because it's like, okay, well, everybody kind of, I mean, rightly so, like rags all over the Confederacy. You hear the bad stories from there, but then like you don't hear the ones that happen in the Union. And Jefferson C. Davis is definitely one of them. Like, and I mean, you have to look at someone too, like Dan Sickles. He's committed murder, but apparently it was temporary insanity, according to Stanton. Sickles doesn't lift up a pontoon bridge and it results in the death of people. No, I think that's probably a good assumption on your part. But again, again, you know what? It's in, that's why Lee said that, you know, war is a, assurance of war is a terrible thing, right? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's a, I think it's a pretty good study. I think, Understanding the whole aspect of how Christmas really developed in the Civil War was, mm-hmm. was a really good thing. And, and just understanding that it's still, you know, it's always been a mel- melancholy holiday. Yep. You know, it's joyous, but you always, you always think about the people who aren't with you anymore mm-hmm. when you think of Christmas time. Whether it's a parent or a grandparent or someone who's de- deployed somewhere, someone who's, you know, who's away. It, it makes you reflect. And I think to, to what we said earlier with, with Christmas was... Christmas is a holiday the Civil War really brought to make you realize the importance of home and family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think we're going to really, I think what we're going through now, where we can't be with those that we love at Christmas, I think moving forward, it's going to make those other Christmases where we can be with them that much more special. You know what I mean? Like, I think we're going to see a lot more people get into the holiday spirit. You know, I know, like, oddly enough, I'm embracing Christmas more than I have in a long time. You know, like I've got a mm-hmm. Christmas tree up this year because I want to see the lights, you know, for what, like, it's just, it's pretty, you know, to come home and see the Christmas tree on or whatever. And I'm just, you know, trying to be as positive I can right now because I know next year it's going to be even better. And that's the whole thing. I mean, it, it always looks forward at the end of, uh, end of a tough year, beginning of a new year and, mm-hmm. you know, annually, the, you know, good, the bad, and the ugly. This is obviously yep. every difficult year for a lot of people just like the snow is going to melt and the spring is going to come back again the sun's going to come tomorrow and that's how you can look at it but you look at the look at the bright side what it does mary it makes you appreciate what you have and and look forward to to what's coming down the road that that's that's the that's the big thing with all these with these in the civil war really you know started with Thanksgiving and then, and then went over to um to christmas it, it really brings brings that out and that that those same feelings still exist today and they have ever since ever since the civil war exactly yeah no i would agree so what's on tap mayor we have our facebook live if you're listening to this on saturday morning we have our facebook live at 10 o'clock and then we our next episode is going to be part two of our march to the sea for sherman and we don't know that might actually end up being a threesome we might end up spending a third episode talking about sherman's march and historical memory so i think i think there's a lot of good stuff so we have we have our facebook live it's at 10 o'clock that'll be awesome like you said 
Um, hopefully the round table, everyone enjoyed that because it'll be past tense when this thing drops. We'll yep. be talking about books. And if you weren't on that, shame on you. You're a, <laughs> you get the call too. But no, if you can't make it, that's great. We're going to do it every third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. We'll talk about different things. So we actually have a subject this time. We're going to talk about books. So, yep. And then next week, Mary, you know who comes out of his rabbit hole? Sherman. Talking Sherman, Sherman, he comes back. Yep. He shows up in Savannah. So part two of the Sherman's March to the Sea, we're going to talk about that. And I have a feeling, Mary, he's going to get Savannah. Just yeah. a feeling. I did just say that it might be a threesome for us. It might be a threesome. Yeah. Nothing better than a threesome in Savannah, Mary, (laughs) you know, but I think it'll be, um, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to it. I think this was a a good episode. It's nice that, you know what though? And honestly, it's good to step away a little bit from the nonstop casualty numbers and this, because it's just, especially around this time of year, you definitely want to, like we said, appreciate the stuff and have a, like a lighter episode. This, this was fun doing this. This was a good time doing this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think well, it'll be fun. Our second annual Christmas McClaws Spectacular will be even better. Yeah. We'll, you know, maybe we'll sit outside in the snow somewhere for yep. that one, mm-hmm. you know. But in any case, this was good. So I think put a bell, uh, a bow on this one. Actually, a bell. <laughs> bells on this one, yeah. right? You know, and uh, get ready to go to bed. Well, Santa's packing up his sleigh right now, mm-hmm. loading up toys for me and coal for you. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, because I've been naughty, apparently. Well, you're up there with them at the North Pole up there, aren't you? You're probably helping them. You dress as the elf. You probably help them build some toys right now. I am. That makes sense. At least you're doing something. <laughs> you know, at least you're staying busy. It must be a slow ice cream season at the old DQ. It is. So doing something different. So anyways, this is fun. So I look forward to on to the next one. Hopefully have a great rest of the week, Mary. We look forward to talking to you at the round table, but especially on the live. We have a lot of fun with those. Yeah. So um, any parting words for you? Ho, ho, Howard. <laughs> no, just um, thanks everybody for your support through these 18 episodes as well as coming out with the Facebook Lives and joining us for the roundtables. And I guess this would be like kind of our, this is actually going to be our like Merry Christmas to everybody because our next episode will drop next Saturday, which is that's right, December 26th. So yes. hope all of you have a very Merry Christmas. Have a safe Christmas, drink lots of eggnog and lots yep. of cookies and everything else you do. Hope you have a safe holiday and I promise that Christmas 2021 is going to be better. It definitely will. will. I guarantee you it will be. So Mary, again, the pleasure. We look forward to talking to everybody else. So thanks for watching and listening, everybody. It's a lot of fun doing this. And we will see you once again on the other side. See you later, guys. Peace out. Bye.